Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Happy New Year, listeners. This is season six, episode one, the very first of 2021. Contrary to popular belief, the flip of the calendar does not flip reality. Um, But the thought of it is good, isn't it? The thought of flipping reality, especially after the 2020 we had, is a good thought. But uh, time is a river. It's not a compartment. So here we are, 2021. Season six, episode one. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books, including the just released Jesus Center Daily. It was released in uh, early October. And um, now is prime time, by the way, for uh, if you haven't already established a pattern of of reading a daily devotional as a way to uh, sort of start your day off with it in a connected way with Jesus. Well, now's the time. Um This is exactly why I spent two years writing this daily devotional as a way to just establish a rhythm of intimacy with Jesus. That's the best way to describe it. And that's my hope with crafting each one of these daily devotionals is that the creative uh, insights into the heart of Jesus, the the words of Jesus himself, uh, a little challenging experience to connect into whatever that insight is that day and uh, a way to pray. All of those are just little micro ways of attaching threads from our heart to his heart. So um, if you've, if, if you're looking for something like that, or you know, someone who would benefit from that, check out Jesus Center Daily. You can just go to my website that I created called jesuscenteredaily.com and there you can get a free sampler. Um, you can look at my intro video that gives you kind of an, an idea of the of the purpose of this devotional and, and what's in it. And you can also order it from there, or you can just go directly to Amazon to order it if you want. Um, I'm also going to post a link to um, uh, a, a second free download sampler that Group Publishing created. If you'd like to get an, a, a different free sampler uh, from Group, to check it out even more, I'll put a link there as well. All you have to do is put your name and email address in there and, and then they'll send that to you. So I'll send that to you as well. Uh, I'll, I'll post that on our, our podcast episode site. So what you need to do is go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and you'll just look for season six, episode one. You click on that and you'll see links there to um, access everything we talk about today on the on this episode and also uh, that that free sampler that group has put together. So, and lastly, if you already have a copy and you're already enjoying it, please do post a review on Amazon. It really does help bring attention to the book. And really, we're a team here. We're trying to, uh, as much as possible, invite, invite, invite people into a more intimate relationship with Jesus. Just to really, and the way that that happens is that we encounter His beauty, that we see with wonder what his heart's really like, and we're just naturally drawn to him. And that's the point here is, is to um, influence others 
by simply showing them Jesus. <laughs> and, and this is a good way to do that. So, well, gang, this is the fourth episode in a series I started last year called Kingdom Come. And we're going to keep going with it. And the reason why is the, the kingdom of God is, is a, uh, a focus that Jesus has throughout his life and teaching. He, he starts his ministry by saying the kingdom of God has come. And then he lives out the rest of his ministry, modeling what the kingdom of God is like. So it's not just the things that he says or teaches, it's what he models that show us what the culture of the kingdom is like. So we know that he came to rescue us, yes, um, and he completed that rescue on the cross and the resurrection. Uh, we, we know that, especially if we've grown up in the church, when we think of the kingdom of God, we sort of naturally attach that idea to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but Actually, the kingdom of God is Jesus' mission, and his mission is to restore or replant the culture of the kingdom of God in a broken and fallen culture. He's come to plant seeds of that culture in our reality. And um, if you think about the Garden of Eden being this perfect reality at one point, and then the betrayal of Adam and Eve... Uh, not only breaks them, but it destroys all of creation or it mars all of creation. Um, and then the culture that results out of that brokenness is the culture that we live in now. Um, and we see it all around us. Broken culture. You, you, you can't step outside, go to the grocery store or uh, head off to work without encountering the results of this broken culture that we live in. And Jesus came to plant seeds of that perfect culture um, in our reality. And so that's what we're exploring. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? And what does it mean to adopt and live inside the culture that Jesus came to bring with him? So today we're going to explore something that sounds a little odd for a first of the year podcast episode, but I think there's a good reason for this. I'll get to that in just a little bit. But today we're going to explore the antidote to evil the antidote to evil. So I've been thinking about this because um, with uh, the group that meets at our home every week of young adults, um, we're a little bit on hiatus right now because of our, uh, our, our uh, COVID risk rating is high. And so we haven't been able to meet with that group and that, that group is really burned out on Zoom as probably you are as well. <laughs> And so during the holidays, we really didn't connect with them, which we typically have done in the last seven years. So my wife had a great idea. She thought, um, why don't we put it out there to the group um, that over their holiday break, um, that we would together read C.S. Lewis's uh, great book, That Hideous Strength. It's, it's the third in his fantasy series. Um, the first was Out of the Silent Planet. The second one was called Paralandra. I read these books um, when I was really around the age of those who are coming to our home every week right now in our group. Uh, I, I read it around that college age time. And um, the first two in that trilogy were just so out there and so hard for me to understand that, that um, I actually didn't make it through Paralandra. But somebody told me that the third book in that series, That Hideous Strength, was very different from the first two. And so I, I took a shot and read it, and that book changed my life. Um, I think That Hideous Strength is 
either um, C.S. Lewis's best book or close to it. Um, and I'm measuring that really <laughs> totally subjectively by saying it had the most impact on me and the most lingering impact on me. So it's essentially a narrative that takes place in a, in a college town, a small college town in Britain. And um, the, the story is a, is a story of a battle between good and evil. And the side of good is a small ragtag band of people that have banded together around their um, faith and worship and obedience to Jesus. Um, and it's, it is truly a ragtag group. It's not a, a group of people that you would go out and recruit if you were trying to build an army to fight evil. <laughs> there, there's a, a, a young professor and his wife, an older professor and his wife, uh, a mysterious man named Ransom, um, who uh, nobody quite knows what his background is, but he he, he's almost in the, in, the, in the narrative, he reminds me of Paul, someone, the Apostle Paul, someone who's had close intimacy with Jesus and has seen things no other living person has seen and has knowledge that um, is extraordinary um, and has impact um, beyond uh, his appearance and beyond his ability. That's this character, Ransom, who's sort of the protagonist of the whole story. He's this, the, this band of, of uh, the warriors for good has sort of gathered around him in a, a state called St. Anne's in the story. And then the, the side of evil is represented by uh, a, a massive number of uh, recruited thugs and evildoers. <laughs> um, some of them are professors as well. Some of them are government leaders. Some of them are um, uh, political figures. Uh, they're all over the board. And the, the story is sort of a fantastical um, story of, of this battle of good and evil. It includes supernatural elements in it. Um, you could call it the whole book a supernatural thriller. But I wanted to read you, uh, the, the reason I'm telling you all this is that that hideous strength, the title refers to evil and the nature of evil. And I don't know anyone who's written more pointedly or more revealingly about the nature of evil than C.S. Lewis. In fact, uh, uh, his ability to understand the mechanics of evil is stunning to me. Of course, he wrote The Screwtape Letters, which is the story of a, an older demon coaching a younger demon on how to destroy lives. It, that alone is a brilliant book and a brilliant expose of how evil works. But this story is another approach to that. Um, and it you might call it um, a book about spiritual warfare. Um, it was my first exposure to that whole idea of what is my role in this, um, in, in this battle that we are in the midst of, this battle between good and evil. Jesus told us in explicit ways, and so did Paul, and so did all the disciples. They, they made reference to this battle that we're in, that, that this is not neutral ground that we live in, that we are opposed, and that there are things we need to know because of that reality. So in this story, that hideous strength, um, 
Lewis is trying to both expose the mechanics of how evil works and also what holds it back, what neutralizes it, what is the antidote to evil. He's also trying to uh, explore that. If you've never read that hideous strength, I really encourage you to. It's it's um, it is a it's not an I would not say it's a fast or easy read, and that's for good reason. There's a lot in it that, um, but it is a very well told story as well. So I wanted to read a scene from the book that when I first read it 20 or 30 years ago, this is one of the things that changed my life because of the way that. Um, the way that uh, Lewis explored this particular aspect of how evil works. So in this scene, uh, one of the main characters in the book, uh, Mark Studdock, who's a young professor who's been recruited um, sort of unwittingly into this band of evildoers. And he's been recruited by the promise of being on the inside of something really big. And this is something he's always wanted his whole life is to is to be respected and seen as one of the insiders, one of the one of the real movers and shakers, one of the people that's pulling the levers. So he's he's systematically recruited into this group of of evil people who are leveraging him to get him to commit more and more to their cause. And he's starting to have resistance along the way. He's starting to experience. Um, things that turn him off, that are grotesque to him, and and that are causing him pause. And this band of evildoers is is trying to come up with new ways to overcome uh, Mark's reluctance. And at one point in the story, Mark is put into a room called the objective room. And the purpose of being in the room is that the room itself is designed to deconstruct your soul to deconstruct all of your normal um, responses to what is good and beautiful, as opposed to what is gross and evil. It's designed to destroy those, what they would call preconceived notions of goodness and evil. And so I thought I would read this to you, uh, this section of the book, as Mark has been detained um, by the leaders of the evildoers, and he's been sort of up, uh, up until this point held in a cell and now they've moved him to this room because they're intending for him to be impacted by the power of what what is in the room when he goes in so let me let me just read this to you and then we'll talk about it mark uh the door is open to mark and he goes into the room the room at first sight was an anti-climax it appeared to be an empty committee room with a long table eight or nine chairs, some pictures, and oddly enough, a large stepladder in one corner. Here also there were no windows. It was lit by an electric light, which, which produced better than Mark had ever seen it produced before, the illusion of daylight of a cold gray place out of doors. This combined with the, the absence of a fireplace made it seem chilly, though the temperature not in, it was not in fact very low. A man of trained sensibility would have seen at once that the room was ill-proportioned, not grotesquely so, but sufficiently to produce dislike. It was too high and too narrow. Mark felt the effect without analyzing the cause, and the effect grew on him as time passed. Sitting, staring about him, he noticed the, next, the, he noticed the door and thought at first that he was the victim of some optical illusion. 
It took him quite a long time to prove to himself that he was not. The point of the arch was not in the center. The whole thing was lopsided. Once again, the error was not gross. The thing was near enough to the true to deceive you for a moment, and then to go on teasing the mind even after the deception had been unmasked. Involuntarily, one kept shifting the head to find positions from which it would look right after all. He turned round and sat with his back to it. One mustn't let it become an obsession. Then he noticed the spots on the ceiling. They were not mere specks of dirt or discoloration. They were deliberately painted on, little round black spots placed at irregular intervals on the pale mustard-colored surface. There were not a great many of them, perhaps 30, or was it a 100? He determined that he would not fall into the trap of trying to count them. They would be hard to count, and they were so irregularly placed. Or, or were they? Now that his eyes were growing used to them, and one couldn't help noticing that there were five in that little group to the right, their arrangements seemed to hover on the verge of regularity. They suggested some kind of pattern. Their peculiar ugliness consisted in the very fact that they kept on suggesting it and then frustrating the expectation thus aroused. Suddenly he realized that this was another trap. He, he fixed his eyes on the table. Well, there were spots on the table too, white ones, shiny white spots, not quite round, and arranged apparently to correspond to the spots on the ceiling. Or were they? No, of course not. Ah, well, now he had it. The pattern, if you could call it a pattern, on the table was an exact reversal of that on the ceiling, but with certain exceptions. He found he was glancing rapidly from one to the other, trying to puzzle it out. For the third time, he checked himself. He got up and began to walk about. He had a look at the pictures. Some of them belonged to a school of art, which, was already, which he was already familiar with. There was a portrait of a young woman who held her mouth wide open to reveal the fact that the inside of it was thickly overgrown with hair. It was, a, it was very skillfully painted in the photographic manner so that you could almost feel that hair. Indeed, you could not avoid feeling it however hard you tried. There was a giant mantis playing a fiddle while being eaten by another mantis, and a man with corkscrews instead of arms bathing in a flat, sadly colored sea beneath a summer sunset. But most of the pictures were not of this kind. At first, most of them seemed rather ordinary, though Mark was a little surprised at the predominance of scriptural themes. It was only at the second or third glance that one discovered certain unaccountable details, something odd about the positions of the figure's feet or the arrangement of their fingers or the grouping. And who was the person standing between Christ and Lazarus? And why were there so many beetles underneath the table in the Last Supper? What was the curious trick of lighting that made each picture look like something seen in delirium? When once these questions had been raised, the apparent ordinariness of the pictures became their supreme menace, like the ominous surface innocence at the beginning of certain dreams. Every fold of drapery, every piece of architecture had a meaning one could not grasp, but which withered the mind. Compared with these, the other surrealistic pictures were mere foolery. Long ago, Mark had read somewhere of things of that extreme evil which seem innocent to the uninitiate and had wondered what sort of things he, they might be. Now he felt he knew. Now this scene goes on in the story. Mark has a few more experiences of the, what I would call the slight twist of truth and reality 
that was embedded all over the room. And um, he begins to feel like he's going insane at one point. And the reason why is um, evil, Lewis is suggesting, uh, and I think profoundly accurately, is a slight twist on what feels normal to us. Evil is, is not the, the sort of the black and white difference between what we expect of light and darkness. It's more like the minute, subtle difference that twists something out of its normalcy just a little bit, enough to keep you looking or engaged, but also enough to upend you and disorient you and take you off your feet. Um, and the, the goal of evil ultimately is to destroy. That's its only purpose. Uh, Jesus and Paul were both quite clear. The enemy of God has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, that is his, the mission of evil. Destruction is its end game. And so you see in this scene, the room itself is slowly breaking down Mark's natural inhibitions to what is ugly and grotesque and slowly undermining um, his experience and the memory of what is good and normal. Um, and that makes the room itself an evil machine in a sense. It has its own processes that are working on Mark to deconstruct um, what has up to this point been his normal sensibilities about good and evil. It's designed to deconstruct those. But again, evil is impersonal in its approach. Um, that it, it doesn't care about you as a person. It's just looking for ways, the, the best possible leverage to destroy. So the question in this story and in our life is what will counteract evil? Well, first let's turn, turn to C.H. Spurgeon. I, I uh, quoted uh, Spurgeon, who's uh, a Victorian preacher and pastor, really the, the most published pastor in history because every one of his thousands of sermons were published. Um, and he's, he's sort of a hero to me because he, he is the one who uh, encountered Jesus in such, in, in such beauty and wonder that he was determined to always make a beeline to Jesus, no matter what his sermon or his teaching was about. He would always find a way back to the heart of Jesus, no matter what. And, and if you read his sermons, no matter what he's, topic he's focusing on, he always ends up with Jesus. And um, he's a, he was an inspiration to me and, and also gave me some rails to run on for my own passion. And so I've quoted C.H. Spurgeon a lot in my books. And uh, in The God Who Fights for You, uh, a book that was released a couple of years ago, which was a, a re-edit of a book I wrote a decade ago called Sifted, um, I, I have a section in there where Spurgeon is trying to unveil the, the nature of evil and how evil works. And I, I think it's fascinating. So I'm gonna read a little portion from The God Who Fights For You um, and, uh, and we'll explore a little bit about what Spurgeon is saying about how evil works. So here's what Spurgeon says. We doubt not that Satan views the Lord's people and especially the more eminent and excellent among them as the great barriers to the progress of his kingdom. And just as the engineer endeavoring to make a railway keeps his eye very much fixed upon the hills and rivers, and especially upon the great mountain through which it will take years laboriously to bore a tunnel, so Satan, in looking upon his various plans to carry on his dominion in the world, considers most men 
who stand in his way. So essentially what Spurgeon is saying here is that Satan is, is, a, uh, is a railway developer, a road developer, who looks at the landscape and just sees it um, impersonally as barriers to take down and overcome. So if there's a mountain in his way, he's just going to bulldoze the mountain. Um, and that mountain could be you. Um, it's not personal. It's just you're standing in his way. And so he will, he destroys in the same way, Spurgeon is saying, as an engineer who's, who's trying to make a railway through the countryside. That's how Satan destroys. Um, in the book, I, I tell a story that helped, helped me to flesh out what Spurgeon is trying to say here. This whole idea that the forces of darkness sort of study us and brand us as obstacles, not people. So here's the story from the book that I tell. I'll just read it uh, right out of my account in the book. At the health club I belonged to, my spinning instructor was fuming about something that he'd seen the previous day. He was working out in the weight room when a guy noticed the blinds were down on the side of the room that looks out on a beautiful garden. So he started to raise the blinds so the people working out could see the bed of tulips bursting up through the ground a few feet away. But a man called out from across the weight room, don't raise that blind. Well, the other man startled and stopped what he was doing and paused and then let the blind down again. The man who called out added as if it was an afterthought, but loudly enough for everyone in the weight room to hear, I'm planning to cut a bunch of those tulips and take them home. So essentially this man had yelled out, don't raise the blind. And the reason why is I'm going to cut down those tulips and just take them home with me. And he didn't want the blind to be up so that people can see him do it. A remarkable statement. <laughs> so a few people nervously laughed. And then a little while later, the tulip cutter finished his workout and left the weight room. Some minutes after that, the original man went over to pull up the blind that he'd been told to leave down. The raised blind revealed a shocking scene. The tulip cutter was standing in the garden with a pair of scissors, cutting off the last of the flowers and adding it to the huge bunch in his hand. He paid no attention to the people in the weight room. With his decapitations complete, he turned for the parking lot. The people watching inside the club froze stunned by the man's indifferent brutality. He wanted the tulips, so he cut them off and he took them home. His attitude toward the people working out around him was essentially the same. They were objects as much as part of the landscape as those tulips, and just as likely to be cut down if that's what would be useful. The tulip cutter's thought processes are not only satanic, in line with the collective mindset of the Nazis who obliterated the moral ramparts that protected the German state, mass murdering 6 million Jews as if they were eliminating crabgrass from their yard. Satan kills and steals and destroys the same way you or I pull weeds. Spurgeon drives home this point. This is quoting Spurgeon now. Satan watches and considers, first of all, our peculiar infirmities. He looks us up and down, just as I have seen a horse dealer do with a horse, and soon finds out wherein we are faulty. I, a common observer, might think the horse an exceedingly good one, as I see it running up and down the road, but the dealer sees what I cannot see, and he knows how to handle the creature. So here, uh, that Spurgeon's description of Satan, the, the, the force and impact and mechanics of evil rings so true to me. And then I saw it lived out at, at the, the, through this story at the health club I belong to, with the story of the tulip cutter who sees the tulips only as 
uh, not a source of beauty for everyone, but a, a pragmatic source of, uh, of his own pleasure. And he takes him down uh, without thought of how this might impact others. And I'm saying in this description of this story that I believe in this man was the same, he had the same attitude toward other people that, that he would for sure cut them down in an impersonal way um, if they were in his way. Um, and in fact, he did that by ordering the man to not uh, raise the blind and by without a, a, what seemed to be any nuance of personal responsibility, telling everyone he was going to cut all those flowers down. So I, I really do believe that this is the nature of what Spurgeon was getting at with the nature of evil. Um, so the point today is, is twofold, is to understand the nature and operation of evil, um, especially as we, as we enter a new year that's full of promise and hope. Um, well, why, why, why focus on evil? Why be a, a downer uh, on a brand new year that we hope we leave behind the heartache and destruction of this of 2020 behind us? Um, why, why talk about evil? Because evil is also a stream. It, it, it exists because we live in a broken world. And as we head into this year, it's good, first of all, to raise our consciousness of the actual reality we live in and that this mindset surrounds us but then not to despair over the fact of this, because we, uh, it's important for us to remember that Jesus says in explicit ways, I have overcome the world. And what he means by this is that the, the, the machine of evil uh, that has produced in a broken world, the, the culture of evil that has grown up around this brokenness, he says he transcends it, he's above it. And he's come to plant a different kingdom. He's come to plant a different way of living. The kingdom of God is above the kingdom of darkness. It trumps it, is what Jesus is saying. So it's important to recognize uh, the, the reality of darkness. And it's also important to recognize the promise of light. And that light beats back the darkness. We even have this metaphorically true in our physical world. That when the sun shines, the darkness uh, uh, retreats from it. It's a reminder to us on a daily basis that the light defeats the darkness. It pushes it away. And in, in turn, the heart of Jesus transcends the machinations of evil and plants beauty and goodness in us. So um, both things are important for us to pay attention to as we head into this new year that we should not bury our heads and not, and not be aware of evil at work among us, but we should also not uh, live in fear of that evil because we have an overcomer whose temple is our own heart. He lives inside of us and lives to advocate for us. So um, the, in the book, That Hideous Strength, the, the forces of good essentially draw others onto their team through uh, a surprising mix of kindness and humility. Mark, who I just read about in that little scene, and his wife, Jane, um, eventually join the side of good. And the thing that draws these two people who are avowed atheists onto, the, onto this little band of uh, heroes who don't look like heroes, but all worship and follow Jesus, what finally draws them 
is this reality that they experience of kindness and humility from the people who are um, involved in this community. That's what pulls them in, invites them in, uh, taps into some of their deepest longings. And um, so Lewis is suggesting in this book, That Hideous Strength, that, that uh, a bulwark against evil is kindness and humility. And we're, of course, on short supply of that in the world. You know, if I just take a look at some of the headlines from news sources just today, uh, a top headline online on one of the online news sources is America in Crisis. Um, one of the subheads underneath that is the LA County ambulance crews are told not to transport patients with little chance of survival. Um, there are um, articles about uh, um, people who are uh, fighting over uh, the, the provisions of the protocols uh, that we have to live under because of the pandemic. So people in conflict over those protocols, whether to wear a mask, whether to stay distant, whether restaurants should be open or not. There's fighting about um, the, the Georgia Senate elections and um, there's fighting about whether uh, the results of the electoral college are now going to be um, essentially certified again through the, the, the to, through the Congress of the United States and the and the the people descending upon Washington to fight about this. Um, other news sources have uh, uh, articles about. Here's one from the Atlantic called "Nihilism is Destroying Our Democracy." <laughs> So all around us, we see we're, we're living in a sea of, of sort of a, an edge, it, the anti-kindness and humility. It's almost like kindness and humility are treated as cute things that only children pay attention to, that the real progress in the world comes with, comes through bullying and intimidation and leverage and, and, um, uh, bending the truth to get what you want and um, using people to uh, as a stepping stone to uh, to ensure your ide ideology continues. This is sort of the world we're formed by. And in contrast, kindness and humility seem, well, quite weak. But I think it's interesting for us to, to take a little dip into the Bible now. Um, that uh, let's take a little overview of how kindness is treated in the Bible. It might be surprising to you how often kindness is a theme in the Bible relative to the actions and the character of God. I just um, did a Bible gateway search for kindness. I thought I'd read you just some of the things that pop up um, when you search for kindness in the Bible from Galatians 5.22, um, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this one before, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. We have typically translated this list of spirit fruits into a list of things we're supposed to try harder to be better at, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the spirit of Jesus living in us naturally produces these kinds of fruits in our lives because 
the seed of Jesus that lives in us um, grows up into these things. It's not our hard work that brings about these realities. It's his presence, his intimate presence in us that leads to these fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. These are the fruits of the natural personality and characteristics of Jesus in us. Um, in Romans 2, Paul writes, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And here's what we know. It's the kindness of God that rescues us in the end. And this is what Paul is trying to say, that, that the, the, the sin that we're imprisoned by isn't beaten out of us. It's invited out of us. When we taste and see the kindness of God, we leave that behind. Um, uh, in Romans 11, a little bit later in his, in his great letter to the uh, Roman Christians, Paul says, and since it's through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in this case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. And he's saying here that um, all of our goodness has come through God's kindness, not because we've earned it. The kindness in us, the good fruit in us, really comes directly from the fruit of Jesus maturing in us. So let me read a, a couple of others here uh, that are just skipping around um, scriptures. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. Again, God's gifts are always um, wrapped in kindness. Um, uh, later on in 2 Corinthians, he says, we prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. So here Paul is saying, we don't prove ourselves by our hard work and how we've uh, positioned ourselves um, or what we've accomplished. Our, the proof is simply the presence of the Spirit of Jesus within us. And the Spirit of Jesus within us is producing patience and kindness and sincere love. That's the proof that we have him, because when we have him, those fruits happen. Um, let me uh, uh, do one last little dip into the into Ephesians here. Here Paul says, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. And the verse after that in Ephesians, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. So Paul is saying fundamentally that, and, and, he, and this is just a snippet of what I searched for in Bible Gateway. He's saying over and over again, it's God's kindness that is his defining characteristic. And it's that kindness and humility that also beats back the darkness. It's a wall. Uh, evil does not understand kindness and, hum and humility. It can't see beyond that wall. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to it. The, the engineer trying to build a roadway through the countryside doesn't really understand why someone would advocate on behalf of the trees and the mountains and the streams that they're intending to destroy to make their railway. Doesn't understand why anyone would stand up for those inanimate, impersonal things. And yet we know from Jesus who, uh, over and over again, who says, what good shepherd wouldn't leave his 99 beyond, behind safely grazing on the hillside and go after the one who's gotten caught in the brambles and is need in need of rescue. 
over and over again, Jesus says, I love these sheep. I'm risking on behalf of these sheep. I will rescue them at my own peril uh, because I love them. They are not pieces of landscaping to me. They are beloved to me. So I thought we could close off the episode today by taking a look at a story of Jesus where kindness and humility are on display in response to evil. And uh, let's, let's, as I read this story, I want you to think about those two lenses, kindness and humility, as I read this. And where do you see them? Where do you sense them? Where do you taste them showing up in the heart of Jesus? And what impact do those two things have on evil in this story? So this comes from Matthew chapter 5. If you're not driving and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible and open it up to Matthew 5, and if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible, by the way, uh, great time to get one at the start of this new year to establish a new pattern of, of Bible reading in your life. And the Jesus-centered Bible is uniquely crafted to engage you in the heart of Jesus throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testament through eight or nine special features that the team that I led created. Um, it's a very readable Bible and it's also highly engaging. Um, it does help to tighten your orbit around Jesus as you read this Bible. So we'll put a link to the Jesus Center Bible on our episode page for this podcast. So if you can check it out um, and it comes in, in a number of different colors. So you can check out your favorite color and start a new habit in your life. So um, if you're not driving, you want to crack it open to Matthew 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. Now this man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to him, and bowed low before him. And with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So like that hideous strength, here's a 
story of a conflict between good and evil. And there's the supernatural involved in this story. It's an epic kind of little story here. But I asked you to listen to this story with the lenses of kindness and humility as you look through those two lenses. And here we, we see that the kindness of Jesus, not only to the man who had been um, occupied by this legion of demonic forces, but also to those demonic forces themselves. And I think it's fascinating that the demonic forces, when they encounter God in the flesh, when they encounter Jesus, son of the most high God, they name him accurately. The demons know who he is. Um, their, their expectation is that he's about to torture them. They say, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. So their expectation is severe punishment and torture because the mindset that they live in is the mindset of the tulip cutter. Their master, Satan, lives in that same mindset where it's perfectly fine to cut off the tulips as long as they're useful for you. It's perfectly fine to bulldoze a person if that person gets in your way. And these demonic spirits have been formed by this reality. So out of that reality, they beg Jesus not to torture them because that's what they would have gotten had they been caught and outed in their own environment. They would have been punished and tortured in this way. Jesus had already uh, commanded those spirits to come out of the man. And that's why they're so frightened that he's going to do something that will make their life even worse. And then Jesus does this. He asks, what is your name? Now, this is going to be hard <laughs> coming out of my mouth. It sounds even weird to say, but Jesus here dignifies these demonic forces by asking their name. He does not treat them as faceless entities. He, he lives out going after the one, even when it comes to demonic forces. He, I, he wants them to identify who they are by their name. And the, the demonic forces reply that their name is Legion because many of them are living inside the man. And then the demonic forces ask, could, could you just send us into those pigs instead? And they're asking for kindness. <laughs> and why would Jesus be kind to the demonic forces that have plagued this man and frightened the entire region because of it? Why would he be kind? because Jesus knows that kindness and humility are a bulwark against evil. So he agrees. He, he says, you, you can go into the, the, the pigs, and the pigs, of course, rush down the hillside into the water, and this freaks everyone out. Um, they don't know what to do with this. You know, that a typical response to evil has been to chain it up, to try to contain it, to try to keep it from harming. No one ever thought to offer kindness. Um, or humility to those demonic forces, because it just doesn't seem rational to do that. And finally, when Jesus is getting in the boat, the man that he has helped begs to go with him, and Jesus, in kindness, says, no, don't come with me. Go home to your family, your family who has missed you. Go home and bless your family. Tell your family and everyone around what I've done for you. He's essentially saying, tell everyone about the kindness and humility you've experienced today. Um, tell everyone that kindness and humility is at the core of living in the kingdom of God, not leverage, 
not conflict, not anger, not um, the kind of leverage that destroys people for our own purposes. None of that represents the power of God. The power of God is locked up in kindness and humility. And that's what Jesus models. So what does this mean for us today as we close? Well, as we enter into 2021, think about kindness and humility as the right lens and the left lens of a pair of glasses. Let's put on the glasses of kindness and humility. Let's look through the, the lens of kindness and the lens of humility. And together, our sight, our sight will create a bulwark against evil. Let's see the world through those two lenses, kindness and humility, and then move as a basis of that reality. All right, gang, thanks for listening. If you want to check out the links to anything I've talked about today, just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and you're looking for season six, episode one, and you'll find them there. This again is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from rickwellens.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next week.